0: Father, we thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Lord, that's marvelously true in the building and the property that you're giving us the use of now. God, we'd ask your blessing on those that have comprised Faith Baptist over the years. Lord, for their faithfulness too and the heritage they pass on to the ongoing work of the gospel here in Topeka. We pray that you'd help us to be faithful in that and that the use of that building would glorify you and bring others to know you. Father, ultimately you've done what we couldn't do in salvation. That's always the biggest thing. Would you help us to cherish the life we have in you? Would you help us to put others and their knowledge of the gospel and of Jesus first? In Jesus' name, amen. uh, I've shortened my teaching to an hour and 15 minutes so you guys will be ready for your evening meal when I'm (laughs) done. Ha ha, you thought that was a joke. That wasn't a joke. Kidding. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Let me pray again real briefly. Lord, would you open the eyes of our heart to behold wonders from your law. Father, would you would you speak to each one of us in those ways we need to hear so that we see you more clearly we see your goodness and we're called more fully into that life in Christ you mean us to know and enjoy in Jesus name amen Uh, 1st Samuel 22 uh, it winds down a three chapter story in the life of David and if you remember King Saul is chasing him wants to kill him and David flees and he flees to the city of Nob because at this time the tabernacle's there. The priests are there. And David's in a hurry and he goes to the priest Ahimelech and he says, Hey, me and the boys, we're on a mission for God. King Saul has sent us out. We need some food. We need some weapons. The priest says, well, I'll do the best I can. You know, I've only got the consecrated bread. This is a story, by the way, that Jesus picks up in the New Testament. Uh, And I've got the sword of Goliath. You can have that if you want. Okay, they take it and on they go. Well, later on in this story, King Saul sitting there in the area of Benjamin is lamenting to his kith and kin that no one tells him about what David's doing. He thinks David is usurping his authority. He thinks David is going to rebel against him and is going to try and take over the kingdom. So he's lamenting to his kith and kin. He says, none of you guys will tell me when David goes someplace or what he's doing to undermine my authority and my rule. Well, there's a fellow there named Doeg, and Doeg is not an Israelite, he's an Edomite. And Doeg pipes up and he says, well, King Saul, you know, it just so happens that I was at the city of Nob when David, the guy you're talking about, came through. And I'll tell you that Ahimelech helped him. He gave him food, he gave him the sword of Goliath. So, I'm your man, I'll stand up and be counted, I'm on your side, good King Saul. Saul says, hey, you better call those guys here right now. So he calls Ahimelech and the priest from the city of Nob, again where the tabernacle was, no temple yet in those days. He calls them to himself and says, what is this I hear about you hearing, helping my enemy David? And Ahimelech's like, "What? David's your son-in-law. He's the captain of your guard. Of course when he came to me, I gave him food and helped him in the ways that I can, but I don't know what you're talking about with this other stuff. Well, Saul says to the men with him, this is First Samuel 22, 17, the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he had fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Saul says, murder these innocent men right here, right now. But then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. Doeg the Edomite was more faithful in the murder of the innocent than King Saul had been when God commanded him to slay King Agag and all his clan. And if you remember later when you read the book of Esther, it is the descendant of King Agag that seeks to put to death all of the Jews in the Persian Empire. Doeg was faithful in his wickedness in slaying the innocent. He was a man committed to evil, When wickedness presented itself before Him, He didn't turn and go the other way, but rather He rushed headlong into it. And Doeg is a picture of one of the things God says He hates. We're in week 5 of the seven-part series out of Proverbs 6. Seven things God hates. Let me just read verses 16 through 18. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes. Pride, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, certainly that was Doeg, a heart that devises wicked plans, and today, feet that make haste to run to evil. God hates, he says in this passage, feet that hurry towards evil. Before we get into this, reminders on the passage generally, The passage uses numbers to heighten our sense of things. We count them off as we go. Each one has this significance. Each thing God ties to our body. This is not an abstraction. These are things you and I can do. It's not out there. It's you and it's me attached to our body. And the primary point will be the last or the seventh thing. And we'll we'll see why when we get to week seven. So God hates feet that make haste to run to evil. Feet represent the habits of the heart and the priorities of the person. Feet here characterizes what you do, where you go and what you do when you get there. So in the Old Testament, as we build our case here just a little bit, the priest's big toe on their right foot was anointed to represent that their life was separated to God, represented in their feet. God would give the Jews, as He promised to Abraham, all the places of the land of promise where their feet walked. If their feet went on it, it was theirs. It represented them and their ownership. God required bare feet when Moses, Joshua, and the priests were in His presence. Shod feet in the presence of God were inappropriate. Your feet are to be bare when you come into My presence. You're not covering anything up. You're coming in as you really are. Conquerors placed their feet on the neck of the conquered to show that they owned them, that that person was under their authority, control, and command. And if you think of Ruth at the feet of Boaz that night on the threshing floor, she was saying, I'm submitting Boaz to who you are. I'm asking you to be my covering, my protector. So, the inclinations of the heart are read in the footprints of the life. The feet, it's where we go. It's what we do. It's what we're characterized by. God hates feet. That hurry, this is to be hasty, and impetuous, we're given to it. It's our proclivity. It's what we default to. We don't have to think about this. It's just what we tend to do, like falling down. And to evil, that which is bad, malignant, it gives pain, unhappiness or misery. It's hurtful, it's unkind, it's vicious in disposition. It's in a word, it's wicked. So, sort of paraphrased or brought out a little bit, God hates when we're predisposed, when we're quick and ready to do evil, when the habits of our life are quick to carry us down the path of those things that are hurtful, unkind, or vicious, when the things we tend toward and default to are evil. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the heart and the meditations of the heart, and you remember we said that it's out of the heart that all our passions and our motives come from within, from our imaginations and our mind, but this morning it's talking about the fruit of the imaginations of the heart. You know, no one can read your mind or mine, your heart or my heart. Sometimes we say, I know what you're thinking, but that may not be true. But listen, you can tell what a person's priorities are by where they go and by what they do. If you were in the Financial Peace University Sunday School class, and they talk about looking at your schedule, your calendar, and your checkbook, we've said that here for decades. Those are your priorities. What do you do? That reflects who you are and what you cherish. So a couple of weeks ago, it's the heart. All of life proceeds out of the heart. Well, today it's about what do you in fact do? That's the testimony to what's going on in your heart. What do our actions say? In what ways do the paths of life we choose to tread reflect either what God hates Or what God loves? By what are we characterized by? Uh, Proverbs 20, verse 11 was a verse that our girls memorized early and we repeated often. Even a child is known by his doings, whether his way be right and pure. So you don't have to figure things out. This is not hard, is it? If junior's disobeying, junior's disobedient. You can tell even by a child where their heart's at, by what they do, but that's true for you and I today as well. Do we do the things God delights in, or do we do the things He hates? I uh, hope you have a study sheet. I'll, I'll skip some of these uh, verses and hit others for the sake of time. But Proverbs one verses ten through sixteen. When Proverbs open, Dad is telling Junior how to live life well and successfully. And so he starts telling Junior softball kinds of things. These are easy to grasp. And so in verse 10, <clears throat> he says, Junior, son, if sinners entice you, don't consent. If they say, come, let us lie and wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason. He, this is a softball thing to Junior. Son, if somebody comes and says, let's go murder people and take their stuff, that's easy, isn't it? You don't go with them. Don't go there. Get down to verse 15 and 16. This is, wh- this is how he puts the image in Junior's mind. Don't walk in the way with them. Don't walk where they walk. Hold back your foot from their paths. Don't walk on the paths they're walking on. Their feet run to evil. It's all about where your feet are taking you, the paths of life you tread. Dad says, Junior, don't go there. Don't walk there. Don't let your feet go where their feet take them. Proverbs 2, verse 14, speaking of the wicked, says, they delight in doing evil. This isn't about the heart here. This is about the actions of the life. They delight in doing evil. It's action. Judges 2, verse 11, these are some quick examples. The people of Israel did. It's action. What was evil in the sight of the Lord, they served the Baals. Serving the Baals required something of them. So if you look in 2 Kings 21, You remember Judah in the south that has some outstanding kings, and Hezekiah was one of them. But Hezekiah is barely cold and in the tombs of his father when his son Manasseh takes over and did evil in the sight of the Lord. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel, he rebuilt the high places Hezekiah his father had destroyed. Guys, this required work. This was a financial investment. This required planning and plotting and finances and recruiting workers. This was what he was doing. He erected altars for Baal. He made Asherah, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He worshipped the host of heaven. He physically bowed down before these statues. He offered offerings, including his own children on the altars, to these gods. You don't have to wonder what was in Manasseh's heart. You can see what was in Manasseh's heart by what he did. Where do our feet go? What paths of life do you and I frequent towards? What is our heart tending? It's seen in what we do. God hates both the evil that men do and the tendency by which we are set to do evil. The inner proclivity to do those things that God says are wicked. Now, If you see someone that is known for some great wickedness like Manasseh, usually this is the fruit of a long process. You know, it's possible for us to do things that we would be just terribly ashamed of, right? If brought out into the public, right? If everyone knew what you and I had done or thought in secret, we'd shrink. Wouldn't we into the blackest corner we could find? For sure we don't get to that point where we actually act on something and do something without being part of a process and let me tell you what a process looked like out of proverbs chapter 7 and it's a great great story this is one that we read to our girls repeatedly it's it's a theme and the the imagery in this theme is something that we've we've tried to implement as a a means of looking at life generally but Dad in Proverbs chapter 7 is talking to Junior again, and and here he wants to tell Junior, stay away from certain kinds of women. Not that women are more evil than men, but a dad is talking to his son. We could reverse that, right? Tell your daughters these are the kind of guys to avoid as well. But dad tells Junior this story. I was in my house, I'm in the city, I look out my window, and this is what I saw. I saw a simpleton, a country bumpkin, come in from the country into the city, now, the text says he's naive. And if you and I say someone's naive, we mean they're untaught usually. That's not the way Proverbs uses the term naive. To be naive in Proverbs is to be morally culpable. It is to not know what you should know. This guy comes in, he's uninstructed morally. And he comes in and the text says it's the, the day is winding down, the sun is starting to set, this is important. Because the sun is setting morally in his life as well. But he doesn't know it. He comes in and he's looking through the town and that he's morally ignorant is obvious. And a woman comes up to him. And she looks fine. She is dressed up. And she's attractive. And she comes up to this guy and she says, you're the one I've been looking for. Can you imagine this this rube in from the country? He's like, Me? You're looking for me? He's flattered, right? Wow, me, suddenly I'm important. This beautiful woman says, I'm the one, what do you mean? And she starts talking to him. You're the one I've been waiting for. I've been looking for you all day. Finally, here you are, you show up. Now this is interesting. The, The text tells us this, though the guy in the story doesn't know it. Verse 12 says, this is how it describes her. In the street, in the market, at every corner she lies in wait. This is an animal on the prowl. And by the way, this imagery is spot on with 1 Peter 5.8. Satan prowls about like a lion looking for someone to devour. She's just looking for the guy stupid enough to buy her line. And she found him. And she knows it as soon as she sees him. She kisses him. Now, the flattery goes on. She kissed me. I can't believe this. Is this all my dreams come true? What's going on? She says, hey, Junior, it it gets better. I've been to the temple. I'm a religious person like yourself. God and me were like this. I've been to the temple today. I've offered my offerings. And therefore, because they're peace offerings, I've got all this good food from the temple that I'm going to take home. I've got a feast set at home. And by the way, my bed's spread out. I've got the best sheets on it. I've got all this good smelling stuff on it too. And Junior, I want you to come home with me we're going to enjoy each other all night long. My husband's gone, so don't worry about him. Not a thing. He's got all this money. won't be back for a month. So you're good. It's good. Come on with me. Now, when we read this story, see, this is building to a point, isn't it? And God means us to read it this way where we're reading the story. We see this from Junior's perspective. And it's all the development. And we get up to this point, what's Junior going to do? So you can imagine if you're Junior, this is happening to you. And you know what's going on, don't you? The gears are just whirring in your brain. I can't believe this. What is going on? Is this real? You know, if you were a young guy, this would be the stuff of dreams, right? Just in the depraved state of our hearts and minds, right? And the the gears are whirling and you're like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And the story builds to this point. Verse 21, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. Verse 22, all at once, he follows her. All at once he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter or a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, he's in a snare, he doesn't know it, it's going to cost him his life. And what we're meant to see is Junior's faced with a decision. And he's trying to figure this out as he goes and because he's not ready when he gets there, he falls and he falls in a moment and the path to destruction is steep and it's all downhill and he's gone. And friends, this describes... Your life and mine, when we're faced with a temptation we're not prepared for. When we're morally culpable. When we have not drawn our lines in the sand. And so you know how this works. The temptation's in front of me. It's presented to me. Sometimes it's just life. Sometimes it's the enemy. And so I'm, I'm reeling in my own mind, aren't I? Wow, should I do this? Should I not do this? My dad told me to. Not to. My mom told me not to. I should. I shouldn't. I can get away with it. I can't get away with it. I'm singing to the choir here, I know, because you've all been through this. And if we say the person who's prone to evil, how do they get there? It's not in a day. It's over weeks and months and years when we're faced with these things, these temptations, we're not ready and we didn't say no. And guess what? For Junior this time, it might have been a little bit of resistance, but how much resistance will it be next time? A little less, a little less, and a little less. And that's the way we get there. I'll bet none of us here woke up this morning and said, I am ready to do evil. Bring it on. But do we not find ourselves at times in our life where we are in fact doing evil? And where it has become easy to do evil? And it's because this is the process we were in. And it got repeated over and over and over again. And that's how we end up like this thing and this person that God says He hates where the inclination, the tendency of our life is to do evil. We don't think about it anymore. We just run to it. It's a downhill slide. It's our propensity. What does it look like in your life and mine, this process? It looks a little bit like that. That, This is an easy one. It's meant to be easy. And, And the issues you and I face, the challenges, the temptations in life, may not be this easy to see. But guys, let me ask you. This is a short list. When other young men are disrespectfully speaking of a young lady or looking at young women, do you join in? That's a temptation. Or young ladies, do you get silly and I I just mean stupid about young guys and the people around you? Do you just stupid about young guys, you know? Or do you say no? You know, you know, when we do that, we're objectifying that person, aren't we? We're making them less than a person. We're making them a thing. Do we continue to show respect or do we just go along with this flow? By the way, when someone brings out the marijuana, do I fall in line and join them? You know it's a little thing, it's not a big thing. It's just a little pot. Do I fall in line or have I drawn a line in the sand and say, I don't do that? When those I'm with run headlong into alcoholic excess, do I run with them? You know, if I choose to go out with friends that I'm witnessing to, I'm there for their sake. I'm witnessing at the party. And they're running to excess. Do I run with them? When others are quick to cut corners at work, do I fall in line too? Do I steal from my employer by cutting corners at work? Do I get used to doing that? You see what I'm saying. It starts as small things, and small things lead to bigger things. And the temptation not confronted and actioned against becomes our tendency, our inclination. That's how this works. Is the bent of my life from the viewpoint of what I do, for today, forget the heart, what I do, is it pleasing to God and does it communicate to others that I hate what God hates and love what God loves? And When we talk about from the view of others, this is not about pleasing other people. But if I said, if I was someone else and I simply looked in at my life, what they could see in my life, what would it communicate? Objectively, what does my life tell others as seen only in actions? That's the negative. That's the downside. So we're shifting gears, right? We're turning 180 and we say, well, what does the upside of this looks like? God hates that. God loves something opposite of that, doesn't He? On the, uh, on the antidote to this, on the front end... Let me say this, before you get to the issues of the heart and spiritual transformation, let's just say this. On the front end of avoiding the inclination of evil, we would just say what the Scripture says in a number of areas, don't do it. It's It's not hard. It's not rocket science. It's not complicated. You just say, don't do that. So, Psalm 1 verse 1 says, How blessed, how happy, how successful is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't do it. He's already made up his mind. He's not going there. He doesn't walk where they walk. Psalm 50, verse 23, "...to one who orders his way right, I will show the salvation of God." He's just doing what God has said to do. Proverbs 3, verse 7, "...be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and turn away from evil." Junior, walking into the city, when you see this gal and she comes on to you, this should not be hard. This should be easy. Turn away from evil. There's a couple other Proverbs there on your study sheet. In Proverbs, the path of righteousness is like a Roman road. It's straight and level. It goes right out straight ahead of you. And when you turn to the right or the left, either way is to be morally culpable. We want to go straight ahead. You don't turn to evil on either side. You just don't do it. So if we say, Transformation, how do I do the things God loves? Don't do evil. That's the starting place. Just don't do it. Don't go there. Ultimately, of course, that's the short answer. The real answer and the one that lasts forever, right, is inner transformation. And we've said this every week, is it not? It's to become like God Himself. If I want to love what God loves, I need to become more like God. You and I know that that happens through the Gospel, right? I hear the truth about Jesus. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. He's died on the cross for my sins. He's atoned for. He's covered, it out my sins, my culpability before God. Not only that... But He sent His Spirit within me. He's caused me to be born again. I have a new Spirit within me. I have the Holy Spirit within me. I have the truth of God's Word. And I am being transformed from the inside out. And that's the ultimate solution, right? To tendency towards evil. And let's look at this just briefly with the lens on God. What does this look like related to God? If we're growing in godliness, what might that look like? John 3.16 is the best known... Uh, verse in the Bible, I'm told, God so loved the world that He said, I love you. God so loved the world that He thought happy thoughts about you and me from heaven. God so loved the world that He sent His Son. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You see where this goes. You don't have to figure out if God loves you because He did something. You know, and when people try and confuse issues by telling you a loving God couldn't judge anyone, so if your God judges, he can't be loving, you say, no, not so quick. The incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection is the eternal promise and the promise kept that God loves us because he did something. He sent his only begotten Son. You get into the life of Jesus both in the predisposition to do those things that God loves. And the doing, you see that in spades again, don't you? Mark's Gospel, it's the shortest. There's no birth narrative in Mark's Gospel because it's all about what Jesus does. The term immediately is used 41 times in Mark's Gospel. John the Baptist shows up, Jesus follows him, and, it's all, and, and the servant is running down the road doing the things God wants him to do. Immediately, Jesus did these things. It's all about what Jesus was doing. Jesus the servant, Mark presents Jesus as the servant. In Acts 10, verse 38, when Peter goes to the household of Cornelius, he's a Gentile. This is a big deal because the gospel is now broaching the barrier that was the Gentile world in Acts 10. And so Peter is preaching the gospel to Cornelius. And Cornelius knows just a little bit about Judaism at least. But when Peter describes Jesus, he says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good. When Peter wants Cornelius to know what Jesus looked like, he said, he went around doing good. He was characterized by his actions. 1 Timothy 6, verse 18 is a great verse. Paul told Timothy for the church at Ephesus... To instruct those who are rich in this present world. They've got money. And by the way, by this standard, all of us in this room are wealthy. This doesn't exclude anyone. We're not talking about billionaire, millionaire status here. We are wealthy. We have roofs. We have food. We have transportation. We're wealthy. Instruct those who are rich in this present world to be good, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. This is all about action. This is not words. This is what you do. Ephesians 2.10 is a verse I love. And I love Ephesians. I hope you do too. Ephesians uh, 1 and 2 up through 2.9 is, is great theology. And it's about God in His loving kindness. He's elected that we would be saved. And He stamped us with His Holy Spirit. And we were spiritually dead. Chapter 2 verse 1. And He made us to be alive. And it's by grace you have been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of yourselves, not of works, that no one should boast. Get to verse 10, and then it shifts gears quite suddenly. So it's God's kindness, God's electing love. God made you alive. It's by His grace. It's His favor. It's a gift to you. It has nothing to do with anything you've ever done. And then you get to verse 10. Wow. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That he prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. You know, we say God saved us for a number of reasons, right? He loves us and he saved us from hell. That's a good thing. That's a good day. We'll take that. But he also saved us so that here in the life we walk on this earth, we do good works. Good works don't save us. Paul's clear on that. By grace. Not what you do. It's through faith. No work. But once you've been saved by God's grace through faith, Paul says God has commissioned you in this life, short life on the earth, to do good works. And guess what? You don't even have to be very creative about this. Because God's created the good works for you to walk in. So I just say, what is it, Lord? Show me. Give me eyes to see what you want me to do. What are the good works we're called to do? That's our life as a Christian on the earth. 1 John 3, 18, Don't love in word or talk. That doesn't mean don't tell others you love them. It means if you say you love them, then you must show it. Love in deed and in truth. Many of you might have what I think is kind of a cheesy hanging on your wall. I was, when I inspected homes... You know, you're in and out of so many homes and you start seeing some things with regularity, right? And Maybe I'll offend someone here, I don't know. So, so it's almost always it's in the kitchen or it's in the bathroom. And it's a beach and it's footprints. Footprints in the sand, right? You know, I love the variation on the theme. Have you seen the comic where the guy looks back on the beach and there's these drag marks and God says, that's where I was dragging you. Footprints in the sand. Um, But image it's a good image, right? That you life can be seen like a walk, and if it was on the beach, you'd see your footprints from where you came and where you went. And so if we say life is like that cheesy hanging maybe on some of your walls, if that's true and someone looks at the footprints you and I are leaving behind, what do they see? Where have we been? What have we been doing? What have we been characterized? Not based on our good intentions. Not based on the great ideas that we never got around to doing. Based only on what they can see. What has our life been characterized by? On point of application, if you're a a child, and, and I don't use this disrespectfully, if you still live at home under your parents' roof, if your parents still pay the bills for you, provide you food and clothing and all that good sort of thing. Are you characterized, do others know that you respect your parents or parent and that you obey them? Because you know if you're a minor under your parents' care, do you remember what the Scripture calls you to every time? Children, obey your parents. Children, obey your parents. Children, obey your parents. Three times in the New Testament, quoting the Old Testament. Are you characterized by this one thing that God says is paramount for you to be faithful, to love what He loves, by doing what He wants you to do? Do I just show respect and do I obey my parents? That would be a good footprint to leave in the sand for those who know me and for those I influence. Romans 10.15 says, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It does, they might have really ugly feet, in fact. But it means how beautiful is it when one person is willing to get up and leave their home and walk someplace else to present the gospel for the benefit of someone else. Might God be calling some of us, some of you in this room, to leave their city or their country to go someplace else to take the gospel, to serve other people in different parts? Of the world. That would be footprints that would leave a great track in the sands of time, would it not? The willingness. The willingness. Have you guys ever prayed, Lord, do you want me to go someplace else? For the, for the sake of Christ being proclaimed. I think you know Scott, in our midst today, is in that process right now, raising funds to head to Spain so that Muslims in North Africa can hear the gospel that this church is supporting, Scott, financially and prayerfully. Are we open to God using our feet that way? It's costly. Kent Vincent taught a series last year called Reach Out that turned the light and the heat up on looking at our own life to say, are we intelligently, prayerfully engaged in serving, in acting, in Christ's name, in our community? in ways that really help other people. It was a great series, very thought-provoking. acid test. looking at myself, am I doing the things that honor Christ that God loves? And, you know, when you teach, you're almost always looking for those points of conviction that help people face up to areas in their life in which maybe God wants to speak to them. And and I hope that's the case this morning. But I would be really, really negligent if I didn't say this. I love this church for a number of reasons. And one of the things I love about this church is the way people here serve each other. And I'm just thinking of the last uh, month or two, there have been some families in need, some crises, loss of a child, medical emergency are the two I'm specifically thinking about. And you know the church just said, hey, we'll bring you some meals. Or we'll watch your kids for you for the afternoon. And when I was talking to our brother in the hospital just last week, you know, this is a guy who's just escaped death, right? Still trying to raise little kids. And he's just shaking his head and he just kept saying, I feel so blessed that I'm here. And he said, the church was taking his family meals. He says, you know, it really makes you know that you're part of a family. It was a new awakening. It was a new sense that that's not just words in the book. Those aren't just little things that we say, but it was love in action. And I spoke with his wife, I think, last night, and she said, you know, it was so nice to realize I don't have to worry about what I'm getting the kids for supper. This church has been characterized by care for each other, and God loves that. That's what we're doing. And God forbid the day that we would ever as a group not be characterized by that kind of Love indeed and in truth. That's the bottom line. That's more important than buildings. That's what Jesus was about. And you remember, Jesus said, the world will know that you're mine by what? By the love that you have for each other. Guys, if we don't treat each other with love in action, why would we take the gospel to someone else that we don't know? If you don't love the people you live with, that you go to church with, why would you take the gospel to someone you don't know? It's inconsistent. So I would just say, for what it's worth, from Mike, an attaboy, because I think this is one of those things, I think this church pleases God in this. And I'm sure there's lots of room to grow. I know there always is. But I love this, that so many of you are deeply committed to act and to do what's in the best interest of someone else when there's a need. If someone followed our footsteps in life, where would it take them? Would we invite someone else to go where we're going? Would that be a good thing? If our life is judged only by what we do, is it clear to others that we belong to Christ? Is it clear to others we belong to Christ? Take all the words away. Take all the happy thoughts away. Do others know we're Christians by what we do? And are we walking where Jesus would walk and are we doing what Jesus would do? Father, thank you so much that you've done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Lord Jesus, in paying the awful penalty of our sin, of sending Your Spirit to convict us of our need and then to fill us as new creatures in Christ. Heavenly Father, would You be glorified in the enlarged, reproduced life of Jesus in us as individuals, in us as families, in this body, lion and lamb, as a church. Would You infill us? Would You fill us up with more of Yourself? And Father, might that be evident because we're loving indeed deed and truth. Might you be pleased with the offering, Lord, that is loving service in Jesus' name to each other, as well as proclamation and love in action to those outside the body of Christ now. In Jesus' name, amen.